And a happy Saturday to one and all. Welcome to episode 22 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I want to thank you once again for joining me. If you're on my YouTube channel and you like the content, don't forget to click like and smash that subscriber bell. Or if you're joining me for the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms, please, if you enjoy the content and only if you enjoy the content, click like and subscribe. So I'm normally not somebody who's like ahead of the curve or in front of uh, pop culture or F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. But last night, on its night of premiere on Netflix, I watched Leave the World Behind, uh, which I thought was a great movie. And in general, and for those who don't know, maybe you've seen ads, you could probably figure out, okay, it seems to have Armageddon, end of the world type vibes, yes. Uh, in general, I am a fan of what used to be referred to as disaster movies. And there's a famous filmmaker named Irwin Allen. There's a great name for you to Google. And he was like Mr., or if you want to call him like Apollo Creed, the master of disaster. He made films like the original Poseidon, uh, and Towering Inferno was also him. Now, Towering Inferno is now 50 years old almost. That still plays. That's a movie where uh, it was based on two books, one of which was called The Glass Tower. Uh, and it deals with like a 130-something story building that, uh, well, let's just say there's a fire and it's not so easy to get people out in a building like of that size. So I've always enjoyed those kinds of movies, regardless of, is it about a naturally occurring disaster, like that movie with The Rock a number of years ago, San Andreas, or is it an alien invasion, same idea, or is it something else? And Leave the World Behind has elements of a lot of different types of disaster movies, but it doesn't feel like Yes, it took inspiration from certain films, but it feels different. It feels fresh and vital and exciting, and it very much feels like 2023, that this is happening now. Um, so I've never been a huge Julia Roberts fan. Of course I respect her career. I respect that she won an Oscar. I mean, I like Erin Brockovich. It's a good movie. Uh, I've never really been a fan of her acting chops, but she's a great movie star, and she always has been. And I, you see, that's the thing. Like Clint Eastwood is not Marlon Brando, but Clint is a great movie star and has been, and he holds the camera. Julia Roberts may not be a master thespian. She's not Meryl Streep. That's not a criticism. But she holds the camera. And even in her early work, in kind of forgettable fluff, forgive me, uh, like Dying Young with Campbell Scott, not good. Big hit, though. And, of course, Sleeping with the Enemy, also a big hit. They're not great movies, but she didn't accidentally become a star. It wasn't just because, oh, she's got a great body for Pretty Woman. She has a way and always had a way of registering. Whether or not you thought she was a terrific actress or she sucks, I don't like her, in this movie, and I, I appreciate when people who are known for certain things stray from their comfort zone. Even something as simple as consciously trying not to fall back on their typical style 
of performance. And the movie that Leave the World Behind most closely resembles, to me, is not War of the Worlds, although there's elements of it, not Independence Day, there's elements of that too. Not even a knock at the cabin where there's certainly similarities to Leave the World Behind. But the film it most closely resembles, for me, is M. Night Shyamalan's best film, in my opinion, Science. Hands down, his best film. And I'll get into a little bit of the similarities and differences between the various movies, but with what I was talking about with Julia Roberts specifically, is that Mel Gibson, we all know he's a little bit out there, but just in terms of talent and his acting style. If you watch Mel Gibson in some of his earlier movies, Weapon, um, you know, even a film like Payback or Ransom or Braveheart, even if you go back to the 80s, like You're Living Dangerously and other films when he did Hamlet, he had certain things that he did. And in Signs, you can see him trying not to fall back on that. And in my opinion, he succeeds. And Julia Roberts in Leave the World Behind, I mean, she's carrying the film. And Mahershala Ali is phenomenal in this movie. I really like his performance. The actress who played his daughter, who I'm not familiar with, I didn't know her. I know she was in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. I didn't see it. Um, and Ethan Hawke is also really good. But what Julia does, there are moments where she just allows silence. And she, her performance is not based on, oh, she's hot, no, she's not. What a beautiful smile. She doesn't smile very much. It's a very quiet, almost melancholy, meditative performance, and it works. And I believe it's the best film acting that she has done. Now, a little kind of humorous aside is that Kevin Bacon, who I love, who doesn't love Kevin Bacon? I mean, he's, he's great. He's gold in so many movies, and not just because of, ooh, the Kevin Bacon game, which, by the way, I am really good at the Kevin Bacon game. I could take actors from the silent period and usually connect them to Kevin Bacon in three moves or less without goof. But that's just, you know, that's my um, neurodivergency, you know, as I always say from the movie Rain Man, go back to Wahlberg, stay with Charlie Babbitt. That's me. So Kevin Bacon appears at the beginning and he does something that is completely normal, like coming out of a store with some bottled water, but you feel like, okay, we just, there's Kevin Bacon, you know, immediately you see, hey, Kevin Bacon, I didn't know he was going to be in this movie because it's not on the, on the poster. And it doesn't mean anything that Kevin Bacon has bottled waters and some canned goods. But Julia Roberts makes eye contact with him and she finds it, it curious that he is purchasing this stuff. And then Bacon appears later in the movie in an incredible scene. Um, and when I was watching that scene and the way that Kevin Bacon was reading his lines and engaging with Ethan Hawke and Mahershala Ali. He sounded like his character from Sleepers, the older version of his character, who famously says to uh, Billy Crudup and Ron Elder, can I help you with something, Chief? So I was thinking it like the alternate universe where that character somehow was taken from that famous scene where he goes, can I help you with something, Chief? to Ron Eldred and Billy Crudup, we'll just take that guy and we'll fast forward him to this movie in 2023 because his hair and makeup, even though that movie's 27 years ago, he 
looks almost like that character in that movie. So the basic setup of Leave the World Behind is you have a family, lives in Brooklyn, it's um, Ethan and Julia, their characters, and their kids, the daughter who is, I believe, supposed to be neurodivergent, and the son who's a little bit of a sourpuss, but he's not really, like, you don't get to know him, I don't think, as well as the other characters. Julia sets up um, like a weekend at a very, very nice uh, home, which I guess we're led to believe it's in the, the priciest uh, areas, like near Smithtown. There are some incredible homes, like for example, near Smithtown Landing. The reason why I say that is that some of it was filmed um, on the beach near, I believe, Hector Park, the, the, you know, near Smithtown, like in that in that range. And things happen out of these kinds of apocalyptic end of the world movies, but they don't happen the way we expect them to. It's the story is focused on this family. As in signs, in the early going, we get an idea that, okay, this crop circle shit is happening around the world. Something's up. But then it becomes more and more interior. In this film, it's like, what do they call it? The, uh, the, um, the camera is following these people. And we more or less only learn what they learn. There's a, a big scene where Mahershala Ali's character only sees something catastrophic because he happens to go to a neighbor's house. In other words, the camera is traveling and following him. It's kind of like in the movie The Pianist, where um, we pretty much only know what Adrian Brody's character as Vladek Spielman knows. If he happens to see Nazi soldiers engaging Allied soldiers, we see it. But there's no sense of a larger, we're just kind of hoping for information, and we're following with characters where there's chunks of the story where everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Did you find any more information? Did you find any more information? So when we think of the classic disaster films of this type, I love War of the Worlds. You know, Tom Cruise took a lot of heat for his performance and, you know, the Tim Robbins character. I happen to think it's really good because it is a serious and sober iteration of this type of film. And I love Independence Day. Yes, it's absurd. It's over the top. It's corny. You know, um, Randy Quaid's character, boys, I'm back. You know, they, they did sexual experiments. The movie is a lot of fun. He punched the president. He, he, he wasn't the president. All that stuff, love it. But that's the style of this type of film where you meet a bunch of disparate characters who often end up having to solve a problem together. And in 1998, you had two movies. The same movie, basically, just pitched at different angles and focusing on different things. You had Armageddon, right? Bruce Willis, prime Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler, Billy Bob Thornton as the head of NASA. I love Billy Bob Thornton, but I always thought that was weird casting. And even Roger Ebert said, they make NASA look like it's a sports bar. That was one of the great Roger Ebert quotes ever, make NASA look like a sports bar. And the other film from that year that also dealt with comets is still heading for Earth, Deep Impact. Uh, which in that story you also meet a lot of different characters and some of them connect frequently and some of them really don't. You have Elijah Wood's character and Taya Leone um, and of course Maximilian Schell is her father. That was a little bit of a throwaway role but the movie is still entertaining. Morgan Freeman as president is great but that is the broader 
where you know what's going on around the world, there's very little like, oh, we're not sure what's happening here. I wonder how they're doing in England. I wonder how. In this movie, we only know what's seen in brief flashes on TV as the reception every once in a while. You get a little bit. Or on the radio, same idea. You know, you get an emergency alert, then it disappears from your phone. But the story is intensely gripping. Gripping, excuse me. And you really don't know where it's going. You know that it's not going to turn out to be complete, you know, gobbledygook. That, well, it's just a, you know, that the deer were running around because uh, they, they were out of food or something. You know that it's going to be something. You don't know what it is. And the Mahershala Ali character is a great character. He goes by G.H. or George. And we all know that he's a terrific performer. Again, such an expressive face. The ability to act with his eyes. Amazing. And his character is somewhat shrouded in mystery, but at, again, we don't know who he is. We meet him through Julia and Ethan. If it's Independence Day, we meet him earlier. We know his, okay, with daughter. We know this guy's shtick. This is what he does for a living and, and all of that. But because we only know what the camera shows us in an overwhelming percentage of the film, we see Ethan, we see Julia react, we see the kids. We don't have any idea. We're just as clueless as they are. And the use of music in this movie is another thing that I really appreciate. Where you had, in certain points of the film, multiple lines of action in different locations. The music doesn't stop. It just slowly builds and builds. And I was on the edge of my seat from at least the 20-minute mark when things start to go a little bit haywire. And I have read also, no spoilers, I'm not giving any spoilers. What, I, what I'm talking about here is I'm not even giving as much information as the trailer seems to. You know what I mean? I'm very, very conscious of spoilers. It's so difficult to avoid them. Um, but the, the slow, gradual build and the use of music uh, is immaculate. You know? And I've never heard of the filmmaker, the writer-director. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with him. And the ending has been disputed already a lot on social media. And I'm not going give to give it away, but for me, the ending works perfectly. It's exactly the kind of ending that this movie, in my opinion, needs. Uh, and that's all I'll say on it. Because there have been, uh, I've read if you go on your social media or if you even just Google it, there is already a lot of chatter of, I hate the ending, this is bullshit, I don't like this. Oh my God, it's incredible, it's perfect. Uh, but like, there are people saying the film is incredible right up, until the, right up until the ending, and then I don't know what the hell, like I didn't like it or, or whatever. But I remember 28 years ago seeing The Usual Suspects, and that was a movie that I was into. I was so drawn, and I could, I'm like, oh my God, this movie's incredible. And in my opinion, the ending was terrible. It, it was an absolutely atrocious finale. I'm in the minority on that. But that is not a movie I recommend it, but I have never watched that movie again because I found the ending to be so just stupefyingly bad that it ruined everything that came before. It went from a movie that could have been four stars to two and a half. You know, maybe you'll like it more. The ending just... And I even got into an argument with a guy at the Tisch Common Room, New York University, in the fall of 1995. I was explaining to 
couple of friends, we just come from a film class, we're just kicking back. And I was explaining why I didn't like the movie. And this guy went out of his way to tell me that I was wrong. Bro, this is not a one plus one equals two. I'm just telling you how I felt. And that ending has always left a bad taste in my mouth. As many people say, it's ingenious, it's so incredible, oh my God, didn't work for me. In the way that this film, the ending does work. And I understand, you know, kind of spitballing and saying, well, what else could they have done? But believe me, I have calculated all of the possible ways this movie could have ended, and I believe that what they chose was, was the right one. And there are moments that we are, because we've seen other films of this genre, where we're expecting something to happen. And maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But the way that they're able to build suspense to a greater extent than the Independence Day style of movie or the Deep Impact or Armageddon style of movie. So as much as, hey, this could be a world-ending type of a situation, by keeping focused on a select group of characters, they're able to build the suspense in a, in a form of a, what you would call a suspense thriller, not an apocalyptic, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith save the world kind of film. So to talk about specifically the two movies that this reminded me of the most, I recommend that both of them, that you, you give them a watch, and they're both M. Night Shyamalan films. Now, M. Night Shyamalan is somebody that I became aware of even before The Sixth Sense. Um, I was working with a literary agent, a real character, uh, in the 90s. He lived out in Port Jeff, but he had been in Hollywood. He had directed a feature. He had done some writing for various things. And he worked with uh, M. Night very early in his career. He helped him to get distribution for his first film, which I believe is called Wide Awake. Is it Wide Awake? I know that Rosie O'Donnell had a role in it. Again, the 26 years ago version of Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, but M. Night is somebody who, we all know he's had an up and down career, but he is an incredible talent. He is an amazing writer, and I think a great filmmaker. He just he's had some misses, you know, it happened. Uh, but for reference, he wrote a screenplay, um, and this is what can happen in Hollywood. I, I've had this, this kind of conversation with a lot of people where it's possible, if you're a writer, whether or not you're also, you know, fancy yourself a filmmaker, but where you can sell a screenplay or have a screenplay option, make a lot of money, but it doesn't ever see the light of day, and it's never going to get made. And M. Night wrote a screenplay called Labor of Love, which... Almost everyone who read it loved it. And this is going back probably to the days of The Sixth Sense, maybe even prior. Maybe it could have been how he ended up getting The Sixth Sense. That, I don't know. But this screenplay, Labor of Love, about a man who embarks on a cross-country quest to honor his wife who has passed, was supposedly an extraordinary read. And it never got made. And it doesn't look like it ever will get made. But so the idea is that even as Shyamalan had his ups and downs throughout his career, you know, the Avatar movie wasn't good, After Earth wasn't good, Lady in the Water wasn't good, most people didn't like the village. But when he's gotten it right, he's gotten it really And I like The Sixth Sense. I saw it in theaters. The twist ending, again, very much debated, although most people seem to think that it works. Um, 
I liked it a lot. I didn't unabashedly love it. Signs, I do. And Signs is the film that is closest to leave the world behind, even though the way that the suspense is built is in a different way. But the slow unfolding and the persistent feelings of dread that the characters feel, and that is transferred over to the audience. It's very similar. Like Cabin in the Woods is good, but it doesn't do that. And as Leave the World Behind unfolds, and we're still not exactly certain what's going on out there. Well, we know there's a blackout, cell service is down, the internet's not really working, all of this kind of stuff. And in Signs, once you get to a certain point in the film, Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, who is phenomenal playing Mel's brother in the movie, they pretty much try to shut out the outside world. Not that they're turning a blind eye because they could be in, in big trouble if the aliens come to get them, but they don't want to be bombarded with all of this awful information. And when I think about Leave the World Behind, I don't know that the movie changes if the characters have more information. I don't think the movie works as well. For this particular story, the narrow focus is perfect, just as in Signs, watching the family work out their internal strife. Mel's character, a, a priest who has lost his faith, I won't spoil it why, it's a great movie, uh, but the focus on the family, the intensity of the interactions between Mel and Joaquin, who have a deep love for one another, you feel it, um, and the kids, the struggles, the connection, the disconnection, the fact that the son seems to favor Joaquin instead of his own father. And, as I mentioned, in the manner of Julia Roberts in Leave the World Behind, a quiet, interior, non-movie star, non, she was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, if not the biggest, performance. I give her all props. And in Signs, if you're familiar with Mel's sort of flashier work, yes, you know it's him but you can see the gears turning, that he is desperate to do something other than fall back on his typical acting style, which has obviously did him incredibly well. But I always appreciate when people who are known for one thing try to stretch, whether it's Clint Eastwood playing a country western singer um, in Honky Tonk Man, or White Hunter Blackheart, where he's just playing John Houston, a filmmaker. When you see people in that business that are striving to do something other than when they're straying from their comfort zone. As we say, it didn't work for Sylvester Stallone in the early 90s trying comedies, but it works for Julia here, and the cast matches her, and the location work is great. Some of the camera work, uh, what I would refer to as geometric frame composition. You have a lot of shots from an elevated perch, and everything is so artfully arranged. A little bit of, um, Last year at Marienbad kind of feel. Little Alan Rene, early 1960s. There's the film geek in me. I don't get to say the name Alan Rene very much or the film Last Year at Marienbad. But that was a movie where the compositions, everything was put together so perfect. This is a gorgeous movie to watch, not just because the actors are all attractive. They are. But the shots, everything seems to have been calibrated for effect. And it, it is the kind of movie when, when it's that tight, it, it kind of cuts both ways. 
And yes, the Rotten Tomato score is good. It's at 75%. But in a weird way, I feel like audiences are not responding because the IMDb score so far is only 6.8. It's not really that good of a score. Sometimes you'll see where the Rotten Tomatoes are in the 60s and the audience score is like 8 point whatever or even, you know, in the 9. So it is a challenging film and I guess not everybody, it didn't do for uh, other audiences what it did for me, so to speak. And this was a film, once I first saw the, the uh, original preview, uh, I'm like, oh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing this. And there haven't been that many movies this year where I could honestly say, I can't wait to see this. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was one. I feel like this was maybe the only other one when I saw the cast, um, and just the way the tempo of the trailer, something about it spoke to me. I said, this is right up my alley. I think I'm going to like it. And, you know, how often do we get disappointed when we're geared up? And this time, I was ready for it, and the film actually exceeded expectations. I mean, I would have been satisfied with like a 7.5 out of 10, and I believe this is a 9 out of 10. And as we say, it's on Netflix, so available to stream for anybody you know, who has Netflix or uh, you know, a family account or whatever it might be. But it is absolutely worth your time. And hey, if you don't like it, if the ending enrages you, oh, I wouldn't have done that, fine. Light me up in the comments, tell me I'm wrong. It's all good because this is, this is movies. And the essence of movies is talking about and debating them. And, you know, there's no right, right or wrong answer. Rocky versus Taxi Driver for Best Picture. As I say, I was horrified. Historically, I cannot believe that Rocky won Best Picture. I love Rocky, but come on. Other people think I'm nuts. That's fine. But I will vouch for this film and for the strength of all the performances, Julia especially, because we know that Mahershala Ali, we know Ethan Hawke, they can get it done. They're terrific. And Kevin Bacon is always great. So on that note, see the movie, leave the world behind, and then leave some comments. If you agree, disagree, I'm crazy, you suck. It's all good. Uh, and that will bring to a close episode 22 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I want to thank you again for joining me for this discussion. And if you are watching this on my YouTube channel, don't forget to click like and smash the subscriber bell if you like the content, of course. Or if you're joining me on any of the audio platforms, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Amazon Music, if you like the audio version, click like and smash that subscriber bell. I'll be back with episode 23 real soon. Hope you're all having a great weekend. Peace.